0: When you hear the word tribe, what do you think of? When you hear the word tribe, what do you think of? You might think of the past. You know, now we're in a global world where people can fly across the planet in a day, but in the past, people were local, so they had to have their tribes. You might think of another people, in another time, in another place. Those cultures have tribes, but in this culture, we're individuals. At least that's what we think. But if you ask the right questions, you might actually see something else in our culture. In the 1960s, a survey was sent to Americans about what would worry them most in their child's spouse. This is the 1960s. And the single greatest concern was that their child would marry someone of a different race. Ten years ago, that same survey was sent to Americans with the same question. What would concern you most in the spouse of your child? And the single greatest concern was that their child would marry someone of a different political party. seems we still have tribes and you may think well I don't care about politics that I'm just not interested I'm disconnected so I'm not in one of those tribes but a tribe doesn't have to be large to be a tribe are you committed to your closest group of friends do you care about this church are you invested in the nonprofit That you volunteer for do you care about your family your extended family do you care about the company you started or the company you work for because regardless of their size we still have tribes and when you have more than one tribe they compete for your loyalty Right? Because this tribe asks you to do this, and this tribe asks you to do that, and you feel pulled in all these different directions by the different tribes. My family wants this from me, and my work wants that from me, and my political party wants this other thing from me, and my friends want that, and my company needs this. I bet that you have felt that tension before, if not most days of your life. And people can respond in two primary ways. They can say, okay, so instead of doing that, that tribe stuff, I'm going to be an individual. I'm going to be disconnected from people. I'm not going to invest in relationships. I'm going to be an autonomous individual. I'm going to disconnect. Uh, but I might ask Dr. Phil's question, how's that going for you? How is it being an individual disconnected from people? How well is that actually working for us? The other side would say, okay, if if we have to have tribes and they're necessary, I'm going to double down. I'm going to pick one of my tribes and be so committed to it, be so gung-ho for it that all of my commitments are going to be subservient to that tribe. Whatever that tribe asks me to do, I will do it. Now, I don't think tribes are inherently bad. I don't think groups that we're committed to are bad. I don't think those commitments are necessarily bad. But if you are a Christian, let me just tell you this ahead of time. If any tribe becomes ultimate, it will compete with God. It's going to ask you to sacrifice something... It's going to ask you to give up something for the tribe, defend the tribe, support the tribe, and ultimately, if that tribe becomes a a source of ultimate allegiance, it will challenge your allegiance to God. It happens every time. Jesus himself, as we read today, is not exempt from this challenge. He's He's pitted against his own tribe. In chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, he's faced with this challenge. Do I commit to the tribe? Or do I stay committed to God? And if you're not a Christian, this may not matter. Because you may not have an ultimate allegiance to God, an ultimate loyalty to God. You may not have that, so you might think, well, I love the tribe that I've picked. I'm committed to it, and I'm going to stay committed to it. And that's fine. But if you're a Christian, know this. The tribe and God will compete for your loyalty... ...at some point, at some time. So I want to walk through how Jesus approaches his tribe in this chapter. So if you have uh, one of these black Bibles in the pews in front of you... we ...will actually be on uh, page 892. Um, if you have a Bible app on your phone... Uh, or some other Bible that you brought with you will be in Luke chapter 4. Again, that's page 892, and we're starting in verse uh, 14, okay? So last week we talked about Satan's temptation of Jesus, and we saw that Jesus succeeds wherever we fail. Um, Each time Satan presents him with this temptation, he resists it, one after the other. And the story there ended with the words... And when the devil had ended every temptation, the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And then in the next verse, Jesus is already facing another difficulty, right? So Satan doesn't really give him that much time, okay? So so this is where we left off, and and this is where we're headed. We're headed to Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. Verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee... That's a region in Israel. And a report concerning him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues. Remember that Jesus is Jewish. He was born to a Jewish family and part of the Jewish tribe. Okay? So he taught in Jewish religious services. He went to synagogues. And in those services, verse 15 says, he was glorified by all. He was lifted up. He was held high in their esteem. And then... Verse 16 says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And he went to the synagogue, as his custom was, on the Sabbath day. And there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives. ...and recovering of sight to the blind... ...to set at liberty or freedom... ...those who are oppressed... ...and proclaim the acceptable year... ...of the Lord. So this, this Sabbath... ...this uh, uh, religious service for the Jews... ...happens every Saturday... ...and it was Jesus' regular custom... ...to go to these services... ...and they would hear from what we call... ...the Old Testament... ...but they would call the Tanakh... ...and, uh, and, and they would often have a rabbi... ...or a teacher... Uh, preach from that subject. And so they give Jesus a chance to preach. He grew up in their hometown. They really like him. All of these good reports are spreading about Jesus. And then he takes a really long time to open the scroll. And And you wouldn't notice this because it doesn't directly say it, but the passage that Jesus reads is at the very end of the prophet Isaiah's work. Okay, so Imagine this in a scroll. It isn't a book where you can just flip to the page. You have to constantly unroll and unravel the scroll. And whenever you get to chapters 40 and and 50 and 60, that takes a long time. So there would be this really dramatic pause as Jesus slowly unrolls the scroll. And then he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. So it would be silent for a second. And then we read in verse 20, he closes it, gives the scroll back to the attendant, and sits down. The eyes of everyone are on Jesus. And he starts his sermon with, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." Okay, it's one thing to say, I have a pretty good understanding of what this Bible passage means. It is a totally different thing to say, this Bible passage is about me, right? If I did that, you would fire me, (laughs) because the Bible is not about me. But Jesus says, this passage today is fulfilled in your hearing, I mean, and you might think, if someone says that, that is a very bold thing to say. And especially the Jewish people who care deeply about their scriptures. I mean, wouldn't they be upset? But, if you look in verse 22, it says, And all spoke well of him, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? We know Joseph." We know Jesus is, well, he's not Jesus' dad, but that's another, that's another sermon. Uh, we know what family Jesus grew up in. We know that he grew up in this town. And, and you'd think that they would be upset or frustrated, but they're actually excited. Can you believe that the Messiah, the person we've been waiting for, the person who is the fulfillment of all Scripture, is Joseph's little boy? now growing up. But, in verse 23, Jesus kind of ruins the party. He says, if you look back in in your Bibles, it says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here also in your own country. Now, this proverb uh, may not make sense to you outside of context, so just let me explain for a second. It, from the other gospel accounts it's it's seems likely that Jesus was performing miracles in other cities and specifically in another Jewish town called Capernaum so what they're saying or what Jesus predicts they're saying is hey we heard about all the miracles you did in that other Jewish town why don't you do it in your hometown we want to see what you can do physician heal yourself heal your own people But Jesus has uh, bad news in verse 24. He says to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, when there came a great famine all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them. Elijah was sent to none of the widows of Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath, outside of Israel, in the land of Sidon. Oh, and there's this other story in verse 27. Jesus says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, another person outside of the tribe. Naaman the Syrian was, he, was healed. Now, it's hard to understand if you, if you aren't familiar with those stories, but it's so important. Jesus is saying that in the past there were prophets who were Jewish, but who were sent to non-Jews, to Gentiles, people outside the tribe. And he says, I'm going to be a prophet like them because you are not going to accept me. You are My people, my tribe, you are not going to accept me. Now, sometimes I think Jesus needed a better public relations team to deal with all of these controversies he starts up. I mean, he does this all the time. Sometimes it seems like he's the bearer of bad news on purpose. I mean, he's telling them, I know this is my hometown, and I know this is where I grew up, but I'm sorry to say you won't accept me because I'm going to go to other people in other tribes and heal them. And it seems like this tribe that he grew up in is demanding allegiance and loyalty and sacrifice to the tribe. And the loyalty means you can't help those other people. And and to be honest, it kind of makes sense why the Jews in that time were frustrated with people outside of the tribe. Romans from another place came in, conquered the land, uh, gave horrible and harsh taxes on the poor, and punished anyone who opposed the Romans. So if you were a Jew at that time, you would also be frustrated. Why would Jesus go to the Gentiles? Why would he go to these people who have invaded our country? Why would he go to these people who aren't his people? I mean, they are angry. Look at verse 28. They aren't just frustrated. Verse 28 says, When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, put him out of the city, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. That's an old school way of saying killing him. They're not just frustrated, they aren't just angry. They aren't just asking Jesus, hey, why don't you appreciate our tribe more? They are furious that he is going to serve and help and heal people outside of the tribe. And do not think for a second that we are immune to this. We've actually, I mean, to be frank, Gentiles, non-Jews, have committed outrageous things back to the Jews for this very same tribalism. White Americans have done heinous evils to black Americans based on this similar kind of tribalism. And what it says is, We're a part of one tribe, and that tribe is over there, and we're not just asking you to appreciate the tribe or support the tribe. We're asking you to actively hate the other tribe and live out that hate. And in this instance, the Jews are asking Jesus to do the same thing. And sometimes our tribes ask of us, The same kind of thing. Now, our tribes, again, I'm not saying they're inherently bad. Right? So there are political causes that I believe are are just and good and righteous. And God would affirm those political causes. And there there are incredible churches that that God wants us to be involved in. I think this is one of those incredible churches. And, And I think... People do incredible works of of service and humility in this church. The family that you're a part of, God calls you to honor that family. But here's the thing. All of those, all of those tribes, if you'll let me use that word, all of those tribes can ask us to disobey God for the sake of the tribe. This is a really tragic example, and I know that this can be really sensitive. So I want I want to be sensitive as well. But this happened in the Catholic Church for the past few decades, and I'm not trying to pile on to them. Uh, other, plenty of churches struggle with this, and this is a this is very pervasive. But when the abuse scandal broke out in the Catholic Church, there were priests and leaders of the Catholic Church, not just not just not helping the victims but seeking to to dismiss the story and asking journalists to not report on the abuse because it would hurt the tribe and that those are christians who are who are rallying around the tribe to make sure that the tribe doesn't suffer when in fact the very people that they should have cared about most were the victims of that abuse. Now, that's a pretty intense example, but I can think of another. My, my brother was a missionary in Tanzania for five years, and he was gathering a team of other missionaries and other Christians who, who were discerning a call to go there. And before they went, multiple families dropped out. They, they decided not to go uh, because, in part, some of the grandparents of, of those families said, don't take my kids away from me. Now, I understand, because my brother went to another country, that it was difficult to see him answer God's call and, and, and be away from us for five years. But here's the thing. What those families were saying is, no, 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 we, we want the tribe here And God's call for them to be missionaries across the world is not as important as our tribe. Sometimes, when we commit to all sorts of different kinds of groups, families, political causes, whatever they are, I think God can use them and they can be good and beautiful things. But other times, our tribes ask us. Our tribes ask us to ignore God to disobey God. C.S. Lewis has another name for a tribe, which he calls the Inner Ring. And in 1944, he gave a speech to students at Oxford who were, you know, some of the people most likely to go on to be some of the most influential people in the world. And this is what he said to these aspiring students. He said, I believe that in all our lives at certain periods one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the inner ring and the terror of being left outside he says i'm not going to say that the existence of the inner ring is evil it's unavoidable but the desire which draws us into the inner ring is another matter and this is what he says to nine out of ten of you the choice will come to enter the inner ring. And when it does come, it won't be very dramatic, but over a drink or a cup of coffee sandwiched between two jokes from the lips of a man or woman, the hint will come that there's something that the inner ring always does. That's the temptation of the tribe to say this is what we always do and this is what you should do, despite God telling you to do otherwise? And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if you fold to this temptation, it may end in a crash or a scandal, but you will be a scoundrel. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. That desire to be a part of the tribe at all cost is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. And this is true. Most of the times our, tribe, our tribes will do 99 good things for us. Our families, our churches, they will do 99 good things for us until that one thing. Whatever it is. They might ask us to support the tribe at all costs. And this is something that we have to watch out for as Christians. God will not compete with the tribe. All tribes that we have are subservient to God. And you see this with Jesus, right? He resists the lure of being a part of the tribe, and he faces the consequences I mean, they grab him, they force him out of the town, and they're about to kill Jesus. And, and miraculously, he escapes. Uh, in verse 30, it says, Jesus passes through the midst of them and went away. Um, I actually have a preaching group that uh, has helped me out through this series, asking different questions along the way. And when one person uh, came to this passage, uh, this, is what they, this is what they said. Uh, the people in the synagogue were very angry and drove Jesus to a cliff and then he just walks through the crowd and leaves. Huh? How? <laughs> uh, there were multiple question marks and exclamation points next to the how. Um, but this passage is so strange. It gives no description. And I just assume that it's a miracle like Jesus', others, Jesus other miracles. And Somehow he gets through. But still, when, when Jesus doesn't serve the tribe and support the tribe, he almost dies for it. And and the paradox of being a Christian is, is that we're in a church, right? We're a part of a tribe, and I think God wants us to be a part of this church, or a church. And this is where we learn how to be obedient to God. And it's a tension that we live with. How do we Do we play a part in the church and and participate in the church and learn how to obey God and yet avoid the temptation of serving the the church uh, in, in God's place? It's difficult. I don't have good answers to that. And it's something that I think all Christians have to live with. We can't live without this community. We can't. But sometimes it's a place, and there are people who ask you to support the tribe over God, which is all the more reason to know that we need the Holy Spirit to help us. This whole series has been called God's Empowering Presence, and I think we need to be empowered to discern when God is calling us to do something that the tribe doesn't like, and that's difficult. I was thinking throughout preparing this sermon, how do we we navigate this? How do we fix this problem? But I think it's just something we have to live with. That the church is the same place that we learn how to obey God and yet need the Holy Spirit to help us overcome the pressure that we can face in this tribe. It's something that points out our desperate need for God, our desperate need for his help. So let's pray for his help. Father, we see Jesus face his tribe. And we know that tribes aren't aren't bad, and you even command us to be a part of, of some tribes, but we know that there's a temptation to serve the tribe more than we serve you. And we struggle as Christians to know how to resist that temptation. How do we know when we're obeying your will or the will of the tribe, the will of the group? We ask for your Holy Spirit to empower us to obey you even when our tribes pull us in every other direction. Give us your Holy Spirit to help us today. In Jesus' name.